0: hello and welcome to on the battlefield with father michael mark tony and me father joseph collins where we are sharing the christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life hello father michael it is good to be with you again my friend why don't you tell everyone out there in podcast land where they can find us online and on social media
1: Outstanding, right, Yes, thank you. Uh, Of course, we can be found on Anchor FM, on the battlefield, on Anchor FM, which is our main hosting site. And we share out to Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And of course, we can be found on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at On The Battlefield Podcast. Uh, And on Facebook, we share not only the podcast, but also lots of related content. So if you enjoy what you're hearing here, check us out. And uh, there's lots more of that. Well, uh, lots more of related stuff between episodes. And of course, send us, do send us your comments and your questions. We do read it all, and that helps to make this more of a dialogue rather than just a monologue. So thank you for all your good feedback.
0: Yes, thank you all for your feedback. Thank you for listening so faithfully. And today we are going to pick up on emotions and attachments. Uh, we're going to begin with the emotion of fear. I was made privy to what I thought was a very good definition of fear, Father Michael, and that is, fear is the perception of a future evil which cannot be overcome. Tell me what you think of that, and tell me what you think the opposite of fear would be.
1: So, I don't know so much about the opposite of fear, but fear, when I'm thinking about it, and, I, and it really should, I think when, when we talk about fear in the modern world, it gets dovetailed into anxiety and merimna. You, know, you, know, you know, Christ says within the gospel, he says, Mi merimnate, be not anxious. Uh, and that's what he literally says. And that's what gets, and that's the same word that gets used at the true Bikim. Let us lay aside all the anxieties of life um and and in in just sort of everyday speech fear and anxiety get blended together but they they're not really the same thing i think the uncertainty of fear when driven to a neurotic extreme becomes anxiety so that's where they diverge is in the extreme and then when you're looking at fear uh i like that idea of the idea that a fear is uh, is, uh, how did he put it? The fear is the something of a, uh, of a future evil that cannot be overcome. How did he say it? It is the
0: per, the perception of, and anxiety and sorrow are like the overwhelming conditions that the fear ultimate it ultimately elicits. If that perception cannot be overcome in the imagination.
1: Okay. So it's the perception, uh, that there's a future evil that cannot be overcome. So that leaves you with two directions to go. Uh, it can leave you either in deception, you know, I, I'm supposed to have trust in God, but I really fear that God will not come through on this point. so uh, I can I can try to maintain the appearance of faithfulness to God, but in reality, I don't really trust him. and that's that's what a lot of us do. and we you know, we say that things depend on God, but in reality, um, we really believe that if if everything at the church and in ministry, in our home life, at this, that, and the other doesn't look just the way that we've planned it, uh, all is lost because it's not our plan. And if it's not our plan, we'll even take our, our money and leave. Um, do you think we do it that explicitly? Sometimes, yeah. I, I Yes, I do. I, I think that it rarely gets reflected on, but I think that when we do it, there is... There's something in us that knows that I don't really trust, but then we need jerk back against that. And we would say, no, I definitely trust. No, I, I know what's best and I want what's best. And but I think like I, I think if we take even the briefest of moment to scratch at the surface, there it is. Uh, I I don't think it's hard to see. Um and then the other the well the but then there's the positive side that that can lead us to which is where we look and say uh i i fear you know i fear but we're not going to let fear win the day so i perceive an evil that cannot be overcome and there's no way i'm going to let that perception win the day so that's that's from the you know that's in the new testament that's the father who has the epileptic son, and he says to Jesus, "You know, can you help him?" And Jesus says, "Everything is possible to the one who believes." And the man says, "Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief." Like my belief does not stack up to where it's supposed to stack up to. Nevertheless, come through and help me, uh, you know, uh, help my unbelief and re- and and recognize my belief. And the, the and what's great about that is in the prayers of ordination. The, bi- the bishop says, the Holy Spirit, which fills up all that is lacking. So our forgiveness and our belief and our faith, it's okay for that to be lacking. The Holy Spirit will make up the difference, but we have to recognize it. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I have courage, but help my lack of courage. Um, so I think fear or, um, you know, I, I love the word in Greek, the uh, the um, oligopsychia, faint heartedness, literally smallness of soul. Not sure what the opposite of that is, but it's, it's, it's definitely something foreign to an unfallen humanity. Um, because when Eve encounters the serpent in the garden, she doesn't know to be afraid. It's like the only time in scripture where someone is nose to nose with an angelic being, and they don't have to be told not to be afraid. Every other time they show up, it's be not afraid. That's what they lead with. And here she is, because she hasn't fallen yet, she doesn't see a need to be afraid. So I think, there's, I think there's a great deal of this that is truly foreign to our nature.
0: So Father Michael is on location today, and there's a background noise behind him. And I'm curious what it is. Are you near an airport, a car yeah. show?
1: There's no show. That's uh, I'm I'm in a hotel room that is all the way outside on the highway.
0: Oh, oh, that's cool. Because there is a, a background noise that uh, every once in a while people are going to hear, and I thought it would be useful for us to know what it is so we are not distracted by it.
1: Because so, I, I am in Ohio at the moment. I mean, right now, for our listeners, if we're going to keep uh, this recording then, for our listeners, I am currently yeah, in Middletown, Ohio. I'm currently in Middletown, Ohio. And I am celebrating uh, Holy Week with Saints Constantine and Helen Greek Orthodox Church in Middletown. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful little community, and it's right in between Cincinnati and Dayton. So from Middletown, you can go half an hour south to Cincinnati, and you can go 35 minutes north to Dayton. So it's right in between, and lots of really wonderful, hospitable, loving down-home regular folks. I'm really loving serving here with them. Uh, I got here—today is Friday before Holy Week. I got here on Wednesday to do the pre sanctified Lazarus Saturday, and then all of Holy Week. And I'm really excited to uh, to be with them for a great week in Pascha. And we have been coming up here twice a month since February. So uh, I guess at some point, this uh, the, we'll look back at this recording— and say, wow! Remember when that was just part time? Um, uh, but the the bishop's hope and our hope is that uh, is that you know life the, the community life there once flourished, and the bishop's hope and our hope is that it can flourish again. So we are diligently laboring in the Lord's vineyard here to help uh, to help uh, revive a beautiful and wonderful parish and uh things are coming along very very well but that's why i'm in this hotel room and you can hear all that noise in the background uh it is a it's a it's a joy it's a joy so uh oh
0: glory to god so that might be the interstate it might be loud trucks or something yeah i seventy five highway i seventy five. okay that's what that's what it was, so but I, it was just far enough away,
1: I can't believe you can hear it
0: i i have superman like hearing powers no, you Well. Know.
1: Well, the, the, the microphones, it's funny, microphone is deceptively strong, except when like- They are. But, uh, but you know, the, but let's, well, I mean, look at that, right? So like what we were just talking about, about fear and the perception of an evil that cannot be overcome. Well, I mean, evil doesn't always have to be like moral evil. Evil can be any misfortune, right? So, you know, what is the fear? You know, do we do we have fear that this- do, do we have fear that this mission will or will not go the way that we all hope it will go? Well, I mean, we're, we're not—I I mean, I don't. I trust Christ. This is his vineyard, his ministry, his priesthood. He has brought us here. If he's brought us here, it's for something, and I trust him to bring that to pass. But look how tempting it would be to approach that whole situation from fear, from the perception of what could go wrong. Instead, it's like, no, let's talk about what could go right. Um, And in doing so, we also have to be honest about the many obstacles we'll face, but also with that his grace is strong to overcome them. So it's, I think not living in fear doesn't mean you don't recognize the obstacles. It's just how do you value things?
0: And fear, I think, the more I think about fear, I, I realize I'm coming to realize that fear is really, it's an imagination, I have imagined harm coming to me, I've imagined harm or loss of something that something or someone that I love, or harm or loss to myself, or to my well being. But this is all an imagination, right? You hear, I hear people all the time talking about, I am afraid for our country in the direction that it's going. Pray tell what direction is it going, it seems like it might be going in a specific direction. But, how do you know that that fear that you have that imagination of where it will land is accurate and that and that even if it is accurate, that your station in that place will be what you've imagined it to be, or that it will be as bad or worse than what you've imagined it to be? The imagination is a dangerous thing
1: and what needs to moderated thing, and what is the number one thing that the fathers forbid the use of during prayer imagination.
0: 100 percent imagination images even right the image like if you're praying to the lord jesus christ praying the jesus prayer the last thing you want in your mind is an image of his icon you need those words you need to be imageless like without fantasy without image without imagination purely concentrated in focus on the silence of the soul
1: uh, on the on the name of Christ and the Jesus prayer and and but you know what's interesting is that we 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 put at a high premium because as a culture we value innovation and invention we also value a certain type of imagination and it should it should be said that that's not what the fathers are talking about even they will say I mean they have to have a certain amount of uh, the and vision to uh, to to like build monasteries and you know how do we plan out you know, how do we plan out the, the architectural structure of the town? That's not the kind of thing they're talking about, but they're talking about this fantasy where we're, we're imagining things into our prayer. And what it quickly does is it moves us into a situation where we can mistake fantasy for reality. Um, where we mistake my emotions and my fantasy and my expectations, my perception for reality and real danger. And where fear gets us is we have perceived a potential danger. We have imagined it into existence in our minds and our biology reacts as if it were real. And then we treat it as if it is real and already come to pass. And that is the height of fantasy. It's delusion because the thing we're reacting to does not actually exist.
0: It doesn't even exist. It's really, and even in my prayer for my children, I sometimes find myself praying specific things, but these are according to my own fears, my own hopes for their future. What good is that? Uh, So I I find myself training myself to to think of the child in particular, and then to ask God to have mercy on them according to his will, that he would guide them according to his will and that he would have mercy on them
1: nothing more. And that's why the the longer I go on, the more I just love the Jesus prayer for everything. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on them. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my job or on my family or my town. Because it's just the height of faith. It's like, look, you have mercy, which means you solve the problem, you help, you send your grace. And since I don't even know what that needs to look like, we'll just remove me from the equation. And I won't tell you how to do your job, but I'm doing my job in coming to you, Christ, my God, and saying, you help because you can. And then I trust you to do it. I mean, that's, it's just the height of actual faith. I, how much fear is there in having to tell him what his help needs to look like? Think about that.
0: Father Nick Triandafilu said to me one day, a long time ago now, good Lord. He, he says to me, he says, do you know what Eloysun means? I said, Father Nick, tell me. And he said, when you ask God to have mercy on you, you're asking God to be who he is to you. And when you look at that word, eleison in Greek, he's actually got it down pretty well. God, just be who you are to me. And what a beautiful prayer.
1: Well, one of the things we call him in Greek from the Greek rendering of the 50th Psalm, 51, if you're not using the Septuagint, is elemon. Eleison eleison kata to have mercy on me, O God, according to your great mercy. But that elemon is a participle. It's not participle. Excuse me. Um, I forget the word for part of speech, but it's when a a verb when it's when a noun behaves as a verb and participle. That's a participle. Okay. So, so gerund participle. Right. Yeah. So it's doing that. So, but anyway, it's like he. It's elemon is when it's the noun form of mercy, but it's behaving as a verb. So what that means is you who are mercy itself, you who are mercy and act mercifully, you who are mercy itself. And so because that's who you are in and of yourself, that's what I can expect you to be. You who are mercy itself have mercy upon me according to your great mercy. So like, if I really believe that's who you are, then why do I need to tell you what to do? Uh, I mean, like when my kid, my kid, my, when my daughter says to me, "Papa, I'm thirsty," she doesn't nitpick how I'm getting her a drink of water. She knows that I'm going to bring her what she needs to drink. She just says, "Hey, I I have this need," and I say, "Here you go," and she she doesn't need to to to, to nitpick and ask, and she knows what I'm she knows what I'm going to bring her and she knows it's good, and she trusts that it's good. And I, I can tell you, uh, when I look at myself, the more detailed my prayer requests have been to God, the more and more I was terrified that He would not give me what I wanted the way that I wanted it. Not that He wouldn't do something good, but that it wouldn't look the way I decided it would look. Tell me that it hasn't been the same for you.
0: It's the same for me, but that's that's our everyday life as Americans, right? We we plan everything out with an incredible amount of specificity and when it doesn't go exactly like we planned it to or we become afraid that it might not we we fall into fear we fall into sadness we fall into anxiety look at I, i'm not sure that the depression and the anxiety levels in our in our world aren't just fueled by these imaginations that we have to have have to do and have to become all of these things that we are told that we need to become, or that we're told that we need to have or that we think that we need to have or become, or just lay it out before you lay out your life. And when you start to see all these imaginations, and you see the anxiety that surrounds the the fear of loss, when you see the anxiety of the sadness that surrounds uh, the fear of something not happening the way it should or the loss of a thing, you should also see how attached and negatively so you are to the world these these emotions are are beautiful gifts of god though they are able to be manipulated and attacked by the demons our emotions are beautiful windows into our attachments if i feel joy because of my fluke uh voltmeter at home that even that joy that i have should tell me it's like, dude, why, why do you have such a deep attachment to that piece of plastic with circ- circuitry on the inside? Or if I fear the loss of my car due to theft is that why am I so attached to that vehicle that, that there that there's something wrong with me spiritually, and the fear and the anxiety are really uh, canaries in the coal mine of our souls.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's again. It's that it's the perception. There's always a perception like this is the way my career needs to look, or the way my marriage needs to look. It's, you know, it's the perception. I, what is it? Mark Twain, who said most of the most of the tragedies that have befallen me never actually occurred. You know, talking about his own imagination. <laughs> uh, I mean and 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 it's funny because if you're talking to sponsors in recovery that's that in, in recovery centers they they warn against that big time that like you know you're you're what they call is future tripping you're and they and and they with it, it, when in recovery what's real interesting is there's physical sobriety but what is held at a higher premium is emotional sobriety and they will tell you flat out if you cannot be emotionally sober you will not maintain physical sobriety. And even if you do, you'll be dry, but you won't be sober because you'll be miserable and you make everyone around you miserable. You have no serenity. So you have to get into this place to where you're not just physically sober, but emotionally sober. And um, future tripping is the quickest way to be, is the quickest way to lose your emotional sobriety and it's the quickest way to be just mired in obsessive anxiety and fear. And I and I it's uh, when I hear stuff like that in the in the recovery community, uh I can't help but think that I that the fathers would absolutely agree. I think the fathers would would be behind that 100%. Yep, that's uh, that would be the case. Can
0: can you define future tripping a little bit more clearly for me so I know that I understand it?
1: So, yeah, uh, and all all of our, all of our uh, recovery fellowship listeners are they're, they're all raising their hands, wanting to give their own definition, I'm sure. but uh, future tripping is essentially where you are indulging in fear and anxiety-laden fantasies, or self-congratulatory fantasy out of step with immediate reality. So it can go either direction. So like future tripping would be like, man, all right. Um this podcast is going to go so well that it's going to catch the attention of like major broadcasters and suddenly, you know, not unlike the days of Bishop Fulton Sheen will be offered a spot on uh on uh, primetime TV and suddenly there'll be Orthodox priests on primetime TV and the United States will be converted to Greek Orthodoxy because there'll be Orthodox priests on primetime TV. I'd better quit my job <laughs> and and <laughs> invest invest tons of money in in new sound equipment because we're about to be on television and treating that like it's real. That's one side of future tripping or another side of future tripping would be to get mired in your self-defeat and your self-pity and your anxiety. And oh my gosh, you know, my life is such a wreck and my marriage looks this way or my job looks that way or my kids don't listen and they're never going to listen. And because they don't listen, uh, they're going to get into drugs when they get into high school and then they'll never go to college and then they'll live under bridges and, or, you know what I mean? And then you start to go down that road and you get really anxious about it. And, you, and, and, you, and your biology starts to treat it as it's real. So like future tripping is really whether you're doing it to the positive or the negative, rabbit trailing into a fantasy that is only tangentially connected to the real world and removes you from the real-time responsibilities and necessities of your actual day-to-day life.
0: At any point, do do the either the positive or the negative future trip? Uh, maybe not. Do they? But how do they participate in relapse?
1: Well, well, because your mind isn't in a isn't in a a neptic sober state, right? I mean, this is really where the where the fathers talk about neepsies. You know, we have this uh, saying in in North actually the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy. When things are untempered like that, like if all is lost, because my life is so awful, at a certain point, you you you're right back into that place where you want to numb the pain and there's your there's your drink or your drug. Or when everything's just going so super well, it's time to celebrate or even or even even more insidiously, because it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. Once you've got it in your head that you're, you know, how oh, we better sell, better, better sell everything. I take all my money out of savings and get new equipment because I'm about to be on TV just because you and I have a great podcast. No, no, no. By by next week tops, we're going to be on TV. And, and, and you can really go to those kinds of extremes. Well, you know what happens when you go to those extremes? You start to feel the stress that comes with it. Oh my God, how we're going to be on every night at eight. How are we going to come up with things to say? What are what if we run out of topics? What if people hate me? What if they criticize? And next thing you know, you started out on a positive road, but the demons are having a field day with you because you live in fantasy land, and that's where they, that's their neighborhood. And now you're feeling the anxiety of a weight and obligation that doesn't even exist in the real world. And I better take the now. I gotta, I gotta take the edge off and come back down. Um, and. And if you don't think like, honestly, look at, you know, even for people who don't have an addiction problem, look at yourself, like where you get so hung up and excited about either the positives or negatives of the future and tell and see if you don't really feel the weight of all the all the pressure that comes with it. uh, And before it's even happened, I mean, like people who get cold feet before marriage, why you haven't even gotten married yet, you don't even know what it's like. Wow! All the future things like it, that—it's we do it a lot more than you think. There, there's a strange
0: interplay between how how our attachments to the world um, can stay inside and and affect us emotionally and psychologically and biologically, and then how those interactions with with fear with with being attached to the world. Uh, then, also, play themselves out into the physical world as sinful acts. Um, how often do you see people become angry or despondent or or um judgmental or combative? you know pick your adjective toward 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 that imagined end? and then they act that out against other people, right? Um, I fear that you're going to break into my house, and therefore uh, I'm going to spend money I don't have to buy a security system uh, to protect a whole bunch of trinkets that are meaningless and useless and worthless, whether of a great earthly value or zero earthly value. And I'm going to bankrupt my family, and I'm going to bankrupt myself of time and effort and energy to protect these perishing things. Um, or, or like in the last podcast, when I said that I was more attached to my, my Chevy Tahoe than, than my own child. And not that I should be attached to my child, but I was more attached to my, my love of that vehicle. And my attachment to that vehicle trumped my relationship and my love for my very own flesh and blood. There's a disgusting, uh, there's almost inevitably and always a disgusting and sinful and satanic and diabolical outcome when we live in these fantasy realms and when we allow our attachments to the world and to the things of the world and to the people of the world to, to govern our life rather than our own reason and our love and attachment to Christ. Through the Holy Spirit to govern my world
1: well the thing with all those the thing with all those coping mechanisms is it's all it all hinges on on self soothing and fantasy and bi the passions and self soothing it's all phenomenally me focused self centered like i i have to you know everything else can the world can stop because I have to uh, I have to medicate this down I have to soothe this down. And, and for some people that drug is, is manipulation, like everything in my world, in my parish, in my workplace, whatever has to be just the way I think it has to be the way I want it to be. Or else, everything will fall apart. Like it's, it, what are you soothing you're you're that you're, you're self medicating through control, I mean, you can do it with anything. And the, the real challenge of both repentance and recovery is not doing that with everything. Um, and you start to realize that you're using your, you know, because you can control your car more than you can control your kids and you can use it to get them things. And it becomes a symbol of your autonomy and providership to them. You know, so what happens when something threatens that? Well, you're not really threatening the car. You're threatening my ability to provide for the household as a man. Well, now you're assaulting my manhood. And, I mean, and, and that all happens at a subconscious level. But when we get really sober and repentant about our thoughts, we start to realize how often we're doing ridiculous things like that. And then the next step is to realize you can stop and not do it and not be absolutely ridiculous.
0: And we we all are. And, and that's stupid. I mean, that Tahoe is a great example in my life. You remember that truck uh, in 2007 and eight and nine, it was beautiful. I mean, I took, Immaculate care of that vehicle and when he grabbed that handful of rocks and scratched the the back uh, driver's side door all to pieces he he undid all my time all my effort all of the years and money that I invested in that thing to keep it looking pristine in seconds' like he 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 represented the undoing of of all my earthly efforts and i lost it and and when you live in a life and in a society that that not only acknowledges emotion but reveres emotion that that's the net result if you don't ever allow reason into the equation and you don't seek by the grace of god to have Control over these passionate outbursts, uh, the the demons definitely have access, not control, mind you, but access to our emotions, and that should you should hear that in your everyday speech patterns, both of your own, many of you, and those around you. Uh, what do you think of this, so and so? Well, know, I, definitely, I, feel I, know, I
1: definitely hear it in your speech patterns. My speech patterns are fine. Your speech patterns, on the other hand, for sure. Well
0: oh, right. Because I feel that you're wrong right now.
1: Well I mean, I feel it, well,
0: that you're wrong, inconsistent and inaccurate.
1: Well it, well then that's then that's what's important because, you know, feelings equal facts.
0: Well, clearly. Which is why what I said was correct and what you said was wrong. So
1: take we live that. in a we live in a feeling archy.
0: A feeling archy of relativism, yeah. Objective like feeling.
1: Uh, objectively speaking, of, uh, 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 oh no, sentimentarchy. <laughs> sentimentarchy.
0: Sentimentarchy, even better. I like yeah. that. See? Sentimentarchy. Yeah, there is a hierarchy of sentiment. And the only objective sentiment is my subjective feelings. So take that.
1: I can't object objectively speaking. <laughs>
0: Oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on me! Why, why?
1: Because I, I just I, I,
0: derailed everything I was thinking. I know I mean, I, I, you objectively derailed my entire rational line
1: of thought. Well, it's that a pretty subjective. It's a pretty subjective take on what's happening here. It is. <laughs> well, I mean. But yeah, you were saying that you were saying that, you know, at at the drop of a hat, he undid all of this hard work of yours. And because we live in a society that is dominated, that treats feelings as facts, that treats feelings as uh, as a high premium. I mean, look how often people say you'll argue You'll argue some, you can you can talk about history, you can talk about science, you can talk about religion, you can talk about things with data, and people will say, well, I feel that, how is, how you feel relevant, but they will couch and, and say, I feel that X, Y, or Z, and that's, in our society today, a rational retort. That is a reasonable argument in their mind to say that you're giving me facts, but I'll respond to it with my feelings. And you and that is the society we live in, and that is the uh, society from which you overreacted on your car getting scratched, and that's where you were.
0: And that is the that is the response of an emotionally exhausted human being who has been conditioned to think with their emotions rather than their mind. I mean, we and if you look at the feeling, if you look at our our emotions, our We've been taught that our emotions should determine how we approach our own well-being. So, if I'm sad, I need to find happy. If I'm angry, I need to either just kill kill them all and take the names later, or uh, find a happy place, right? So, give me a trophy and I won't be angry anymore. Um, But this is this is this is has been conditioned. Uh, These are conditioned responses uh, that. Um, that the demons, I, I truly believe that the demons have uh, led our society to be. I know, I know, some of you are thinking, "Oh, oh God, he's a conspiracy theorist." No, I, I think that the demons really have uh, worked very hard to create a society in which um, they are dealing with simp's with people who are as easy to manipulate and to drag down as possible. So we should simps, but
1: not only the simps themselves, but also the ones that they beget. The sons of the simps, which would be the simpsons. Simpsons. (laughs) Thanks, Bart. No. Yeah. You know, Homer's a Greek word. I should throw that out there. And? No, that's that's it.
0: Your imagination is taking you away. Uh, no, no, you were saying, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, no, but we, but we are. I mean, and I really do believe that the that the demons once they get their hooks in and they start to to uh, destroy uh, the the nuclear family. Once they start to destroy our capacity to to reason and to use logic, and once and once they have full access to our emotions and are able to engineer us to to react to certain stimuli. I mean, we're really just a bunch of Pavlovian dogs. When a certain stimulus is presented to us, we react with very specific emotions. And those emotions are activated so strongly because of the the span of time with which we've been exposed to the stimulus and also the the rate and the pace of our lives the number of decisions that we have to make throughout the day based on all the digital input i mean every time my phone buzzes i have to make a decision to either check it or not to ignore it or not and this uses a lot of uh, human resources literally a lot of my uh, physiological resources so you end up with, like we've said in other podcasts, you end up with a whole bunch of exhausted emotional wrecks that are very easy to manipulate. And you just give one little stimulus. Like if I mentioned to you, if I say the word gun, lots of thoughts came into your mind. If I say to you the word abortion, lots of ideas lots of arguments lots of uh people's emotions images all these things come into your mind what if i say coronavirus and the list goes on and on when when certain things are in our face all the time we become numb to them and then when we become numb we just are left with our attachment to to the idea we're left with an attachment to a an emotional response, and then that is the only thing left we we but we we as Christians cannot stay there uh, if if we realize that every turn, time we turn on Fox or cNN or msNBC that we're being triggered emotionally that we're, were that some sort of attachment to the world or an idea or an ideal is is overtaking our soul, walk away. You really need to take about a week off of that, or maybe two away from that media input because it's clouded your ability to think and it's left you confused and it's left you in in the clutches most likely of some sort of insidious demonic force which has to be overcome with with like you said neepsis and with with prayer and with with a refocusing of the mind towards god and his will What do you think of that?
1: Well, yeah, it's but the thing is, so what got us down this rabbit hole really was future tripping, right? And the thing is, all of this anxiety that 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 causes all of that demonic manipulation and fear to be possible starts with a kernel of truth. That's that's what we really that's that's a thing that's really insidious about the devil. Is the devil is really good at at lying with the truth at 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 falsifying with facts. You know, I, you've heard me say it before, you know, when you've heard me say it before that when the devil tempts Jesus, he doesn't lie to him. I think I said that on last podcast, he doesn't lie to him. He quotes messianic scripture to the Messiah. It means it's in context. He doesn't lie, but he's also being deceptive. So he knows how to use the truth to deceive a deceitful use of the truth. is what I'm trying to get at. And so that's, that's the start of this whole, uh, the, this this emotional, mental intoxication that leaves us really, if you really think back to times where you've really been stuck in your head and your thoughts, like it feels like a fog, like it doesn't feel too different than being, than being drunk. It's a fog. It's a mental, emotional fog. And um, it, where it starts with is actually some degree of fact, like when I give those two examples of like, getting down in your feelings, because your life is a mess, or like getting way ahead of yourself and how far this podcast will go or something like that. Like, well, I mean, we do have a great podcast. We do have people who listen and really enjoy. Like, that's a fact. Like th- th- there's a degree of truth that the fantasy spins off of. Um, or like if your life is a wreck, your life might be a wreck. You know, your marriage might have problems or your job might be ready to fire you or, you know, you might need to go into treatment or whatever. Like you, your might, life might have some train wreck in it there's a degree of truth and that's what makes the rabbit holing of future tripping possible and hard to escape because it feels like you are just rationally exploring the consequences of reality when in reality in actuality there's nothing rational about it it's so disconnected from reality so it's that's the thing, you know. It's it's, but it, it it twists a kernel of truth, and that's what's insidious about it.
0: Yeah, it, it twists a kernel of truth. It may not actually even be the truth. I, I recognize that even in my own life, some of the things that I fear or have feared over time seem true in the moment, but in the end, they're not true because my imagination took what may have been truth at that very moment or seemed to be true at that very moment, but ceased to be true almost immediately after the fact. Because my imagination warped that little bit of truth so quickly that whatever truth was there very quickly became non-factual and it became a lie, which is why it's so important. Um, I think we have both heard Jordan Peterson say, tell the truth. Or at least don't lie. And we have to anchor on the truth when it comes to our emotions. Like, if I'm angry, there is a truth underneath. Or if I am afraid, there is a truth underneath that I'm a crappy person somehow, some way. I've got something going on in my life that needs to be rectified. And dredging that up by, by squaring my life to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the saints will help me find that sin prayer will help me find that sin the church will help me find that sin and then I need to exercise it and and eradicate it without any hesitation. It has to go immediately it has to be cut out like cancer on the spot has to go and we do that through confession
1: it, it just yeah. cannot hang around. Well, you know, but look at, look at, really look at the premium that the truth sits on. You know, at the end of Revelation, there is a list of individuals who will not enter the kingdom of God. And two, you know, one of the, one of the word like the second word on there are cowards. De Leon, those who are, who are fearful, cowards. Um, And then also those who lie and those who. Those who make and love a lie. That's what it says, those who make and love a lie. So not just lying, but also loving lying. And Jesus says elsewhere that the devil is the father of lies, and when he lies, he is speaking his native tongue. There is such a connection between not truth-telling and participating in the demonic life that has no place in the kingdom of God. And we give such a pass to falsehood. We, We think nothing of it. We would we condemn we condemn we we have a harder time with people who are too honest than we do with people who lie. We have to say, well, you know I can tell you, oh uh well, to tell the truth or it's I have to tell you a difficult truth, but we tell lies easily and and when we and, and we have to see that since nothing is spiritually neutral, when we choose to participate in lying, we are actively demonizing that area of our life. We are taking that area, the area of life in which we lie and bringing, making the devil devil a part of it. We're speaking his native language into it. We're participating in his energies. I mean, that's why lying is so poisonous in a marriage. Even the little white lies, it's still so poisonous. Why? Because you're taking something that means to be holy you know, it, it, hence you know, Paul's epistle says that Christ is the one in whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It should be holy. Should be an image of the kingdom likeness of God. But now you're muddling in the, the the language of the father of lies. Well, what place is there for that in the kingdom of God? And and what we give such. Like we, we don't like we give such a pass to lies and we do it each in our own life. So like that's why Peterson says just a month of truth telling is equal to like years of psychotherapy. I mean, it really is like really just like take, ha- take a day, like take a work day, take a work day and try to only tell the truth for like a work day, a work day's length of time not like at night when other people are asleep, but like during the day when people are awake, you find out how much you actually lie. It's really disturbing. Um, and then you also find out if you're committed to telling the truth, then you also find out how much you need to bite your tongue. And say, "Ooh, you know what, if we're not going to lie, lying's off the table. And then I either have to find a loving way to communicate something difficult to you, or bite my tongue and get over it. Uh, that that certainly starts to sound a lot more like sofrosini, wise-mindedness, which unfortunately in English gets rendered as prudence. It's it's like really, like you ever notice how like the wisest people in history keep silent a lot? probably not do well on a podcast right because they're quiet well why are they quiet because they're looking at that well, i'm i'm not going to break my emotional sobriety and lie i'm not going to break my spiritual repentance and lie but um i'm also it's also not worth saying this horrible hurtful thing so we'll just not we'll 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 just forego it and our 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 sentiment sentimental, sentiment sentimental, sentiment society our feeling cratic society our feeling ruled society looks at this oh but what about your pent up feelings what about that what about the disturbance that's what gossip is for bro was that that's what gossip is for he <laughs> that's the only thing that's that that's you realize everyone scripture that's like right next to lying yeah oh, oh. really Oh yeah, well you know just a, a drag, man. Just, uh, you
0: know, just, <laughs> just I don't story. get to bite my tongue in front of little Johnny and then go talk smack to the guy who saw what happened.
1: Well, d- well don't, and I, yeah. we
0: don't get to do that as Christians. That's off limits.
1: Well, I, I tell you huh, what, I didn't know. I tell you what, I
0: didn't know that the Lord said to go to the person who harmed you first, and then if necessary, tell someone else.
1: No, it's huh. you know it's it's not it's not it's not over that much of scripture. It's just over the first and second halves. Just over the fir- the whole first <laughs> and all of the second half. But other than that, you're good. Other than that. Just the first half. Uh-huh.
0: uh-huh. Okay. But, well, I mean, it's half. I mean, that's pretty good odds. Fifty fifty, no. I'll take those.
1: Odds. No, no, no. But no, but it's both of them.
0: Oh, both halves. Both halves. Well, that's a hundred percent. No. That's that's your math is terrible. <laughs> the, okay. I don't
1: feel like it is. Well, then, that's all that matters. Well, but, good. but, but, right, but,
0: but here I can continue gossiping because but. I feel like gossip is a, a good outlet for my emotions. I w- I will. Is that what you're telling me, Father Mo?
1: Uh I am. I am telling you that if God has given you free will, so will I. But there's consequences.
0: But what consequences? My feelings were harmed by somebody else, and I need to get those off my chest. So, gossiping is my outlet.
1: Oh no. and take your bitterness and go to confession and tell it to the Jesus will forgive so no you. more no more gossiping no more gossiping okay um so the so but here's but here's where i'm going with this right so like really where where's the big lie of the devil it's like yeah biting your tongue may not feel very great right now right so you you you, you don't get the self-soothing that you would from blowing up or exploding or gossiping but you know what's actually what's actually will feel worse breaking that relationship, being isolated, uh, sticking, sticking your foot in it. Like if you're, if you're going and you're, you, you know, you, you'll break your mental piece because now you're going, Oh my gosh. Um, now this person hates me. Now we can't have a relationship. Now our families can't see each other. And now I got to go to a new parish or whatever. Cause I said, or did this thing like the consequences are worse. So what feels worse behaving Christ like. Uh, and, and, being judicious about when we break out what, because there is a time to kick over the tables and drive the money changers out, or just you know getting the cheap thrill of self medicating just verbal dump and and what you find is what you find is when you have a little wise mindedness and you're judicious about what you say and you're silent most of the time you have less regret like if you muscle through 10 or 15 minutes of saying like i wish i told that so and so a piece of my mind you find that oh the next day you actually have less regrets and less anxiety and more peace and it's funny the desert fathers uh the, the desert i can't remember which one but several of the desert fathers say like do not trade your peace of soul for anything in the world uh, and another one, and, and another one says, like, uh, if you do not become angry in when you correct, in when you correct a brother, do not become angry in doing so, lest, lest you lose yourself while trying to save another. Like, so there you go. Like, what good was that? your angry tirade. Now, now your soul is wounded and the other souls wounded and, and nothing is fixed because no one wants to deal with an angry person. And guess what, man, the, the, the those who lie and those who love a lie and cowards and you know, are we brave enough to bite our tongue and say, my, the, my peace of soul, my communion with God and my communion with you is a lot more important to me than uh the feeling I'll have for the next 15 minutes by not giving you a piece of my mind. And do you have enough courage to do that? And a lot of times we don't.
0: Right. We often lack that courage. I've watched my own children lie. And most of the time when they lie, they they're trying to protect themselves. They they have a sense of of well-being that they're trying to maintain, right? It's like, well, I'm just going to tell them that, no, of course I would never, Father. I would never think of doing that thing. I mean, what kind of person do you think I am? Knowing full well that they did the thing and that if they get found out, they might get in trouble, but they want to maintain their own personal well-being as it is, which is, uh, I, I heard a speaker uh, say that um that, that we we just we as human beings just want to maintain our well-being as is but when we sin to maintain that well-being we actually do not maintain the well-being we do the exact opposite we harm our own well-being and we harm the well-being of the other at the very same time which is why telling the truth or at least not lying, is such a profound statement because it it recognizes that when we tell the truth, regardless of the personal cost, that sometimes telling the truth is going to come at a great personal cost. And Christ is the example of that because he suffered the ultimate cost for telling the truth. And who are we as human beings to think that we're going to suffer any less than he did? Even when he told us that we would, that we will suffer like he suffered, that we have to take up our cross and bear it. That when he said to his apostles and disciples, it's like, do you think that you're going to suffer any less than I did? it's not it's not going to happen so telling the truth and being honest and choosing god's way is and will always come at personal cost
1: and it's okay and that's that's and that's exactly not
0: only is it okay it's preferred yeah because here's because it doesn't defer sin it attacks the sin it attacks the thing right now and it deals with it appropriately and allows us to have long-term peace rather than short-term peace, which is unsustainable, right?
1: Yeah, you're, yeah, There, there, there's no... Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, here's the thing. You're, you're not... Once you've decided that you'll live in lie rather than truth, you suddenly find that you don't have communion with God. And you don't have communion with others. And you can only... You can only restore that by 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 participating in what is true by participating in the truth by by making that right now that doesn't always mean bringing other people down around you you come to confession bring it to confession come to christ sometimes you need to involve other people sometimes you don't but um but yeah that, i i i also just now experienced a lapse in train of thought but the But the reality is that's but that's yeah that's absolutely true what you just said is absolutely true
0: and you know i mean i've even dealt with 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 people who i know they're lying to me and you can say listen i know that there's a lie happening right here that that somehow uh what what really happened is somewhere in between what you're telling me and what actually happened and they just choose to be silent, and that's not a virtuous silence, I don't think. I, I think that it's just them refusing, re- refusing to admit, and to take and take responsibility for their action. And that's just as diabolical because it's trying to hide, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They went and and hid uh like that like in the hymn of Cassiani, right? When when Eve heard the footsteps of the Lord, she she went and and she went and hid. But that we cannot live in these lies. We have to be willing to subdue and submit our attachments to our own well-being and to the things in the world. We have to be able to subdue and endure the suffering of of the harm that we commit. In our own relationships, in our own lives, and that that's going to induce real suffering. But that kind of suffering is so salvific. It can be salvific if we let it be so. And we have to we have to endure on the battlefield. The battlefield is going to bring harm. It's going to inflict wounds. But these sorts of wounds are to our healing and to our the they're like a salve to the soul, if you will. Yeah.
1: yeah and this is this is where we you know you get into that rigorous honesty, but what's what what the thing is what you really come to realize if you start to take a deep look at your soul is that lies and and deception and everything is far more chaotic you know at the beginning of Genesis where God subdues the chaos, where the earth is in chaos, formless and void, tohu va bohu. First things he does is order the chaos. You know, let let the let the waters the waters be separated into waters above, waters below, dry land appear. You know, and move this over there, that. I mean, so now there's no longer chaos. There's order. And then he when he tells the first human beings about, you know, he says, "Subdue, subdue the earth and fill it." And the word "subdue" there is the same as conquer in Hebrew, which means there's still some chaos left right outside the garden there's still something to subdue otherwise it would just be maintained he would say maintain and fill it but he doesn't say maintain he says subdue so there's something left to be subdued and what you really find is that lies because they the lie tells the falsehood that don't worry if they just believe you on this you'll be fine no but then one lie compounds another and you got to keep track of it now you're anxious and there's a lot more chaos produced whereas being rigorously honest or at least not just lying being rigorously honest, you know, subdues the chaos, orders the chaos. It's like, no, Hey, there's nothing to hide, nothing to double speak. It's like, here it is. You know? And someone say, man, you really messed up on X, Y, or Z. Yep. Sure did. And here's what we plan to do about it. And, and check that out. There's also no shame. You're, you're, you're looking at things for what they are rigorously honest, good, bad and indifferent. And there's no shame in that. No shame. So now where's the chaos? Well, with no chaos, where's the fear? Because that's the thing, what we're talking about, fear and anxiety are ultimately rooted in chaos. There's nothing we hate more than that. So it's like, well, and that and that's the primordial issue in mythology, right? Every story, every, every creation story, Hebrew or otherwise, all involves some kind of dealing with chaos. Whether it's through the chaos comp, like the, the war against chaos, like you see in the Babylonian and Egyptian myths, or the complete sovereignty of God that you see in the Hebrew story of Genesis, where there is this primordial chaos, the earth is in formless and void, the image of chaos, and God says the the spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, and the deep being the primordial image of chaos, and then just by his sovereignty separates waters above, waters below, creates order, dry land appear. So there's not even a war, God is too sovereign for there to be a war. but there's still the dealing with chaos that's still on the table. Well, I mean, that's where all that fear comes from. What if this chaos can't be overcome? And and truth-telling is a big part of that. Rigorous honesty is a big part of that. It's like, well, where's the chaos? No, it's real honesty. Success, failure, whatever. Well, that's putting a lot of it, order to it.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a, a fear is almost like us having a God complex because we want to have and maintain – our own well being as it is right now. But We don't like change, we don't like to endure change, we don't like entropy. So we try to just keep everything as it is right now and anything that threatens change, anything that threatens my well being here and now or the well being of the things around me will inevitably in, in, inflict some sort of emotional response, if I'm attached inappropriately to the world. I mean, it's just a natural outcome of our own sinless, uh, not natures, but our own sinfulness and our own willingness to attach ourselves to the things that are perishing in the world rather than the imperishable love of our eternal God. Um, It's just a natural, it's the natural, most natural outcome to have, right?
1: Yeah. In some
0: ways, I think.
1: No, absolutely. It's It's definitely God complex. There's definitely... You know, that, that's the other thing that good sponsors in recovery will tell you about. Like, hey, there's a God and you ain't him. No,
0: that's I mean- a good smack upside the head. But also, I think, I think we would be remiss if we didn't, uh, if one of the two of us didn't say this. Uh, relentless and shameless truth telling is good. However, when that desire to tell the truth is accompanied with a very strong emotion shut up and try to figure out the emotion first before you speak the truth because if i look at you and i just say uh father michael blah 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 and i actually hurt you in order to tell you the truth that makes me feel good that may have not have been the best time or place or thing to say because if it was done for my own well being to to make sure that I remained unharmed just to slap you down as close as you are to the earth already it might feel good to smack you down to the to the ground and and leave you there just so I can maintain i sinned even though I may have spoken the truth like we've said this in other podcasts sometimes the truth can actually harm so that the the discernment of knowing that that my desire that a desire an attachment or an emotion may be driving it that may be a sinful, a sinful feeder, uh, for, for a good thing. If, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't that what we were just talking about earlier where I was saying like, you have to have the discernment to know when to remain silent or as, you know, or as uh, again, you know, we, we don't wound, we don't heal ourselves by wounding another. So, uh, you know, Yeah, that's where you
0: did say it, but you you did say it. I just wanted to make sure that it was said quite explicitly because sometimes we feel like very zealous about the truth, and then we just start saying everything that we think is the truth, or everything that we perceive
1: or feel is the truth. Don't believe everything around us. That's don't believe everything you feel. That's another a aphorism. But you know, yeah, but it, it deserves to be reiterated because. The other problem that we do, and this is ultimate remember what I said the devil likes to use the truth to deceive? The other thing that we and he's also the diabolos, the one who drives a wedge, the one who separates and rends asunder. So he loves he not the only thing he loves more than deceiving is separating us from our from each other and from God. Ultimately from God and definitely from each other. He loves divide and conquer. Uh, And he's probably at a loss for which one of those things he likes more, lying or dividing. Um, And, you know, the reality is that far too many people use telling the truth as an excuse to just be cruel. Like, no, a commitment to the truth doesn't mean you've got carte blanche to be a disagreeable human being and to be cruel. Far from it. It, it, it's it that's where that sofrosini that wise mindedness needs to come in and you need to and you need to realize the import of your words and actions and choose to you that use that in a godly way whereby we're you know helping and healing and and if necessary correcting but done so properly um yeah yeah it's it, yeah. it's definitely not an excuse to just you know beat people up because oh well I mean, I'm just being honest I, I I hate people like you know it's kind of like where people say oh with all due respect and whatever follows is the most disrespectful thing you've ever heard yeah you know, oh, so I'm just I just just to be <laughs> honest just being honest with you no you're just, just saying yeah I'm just, yeah yeah no you're not you're not just being honest cuz there the you could have you know we could have had this conversation in a pleasant way so yeah you know it's again it's Deception via the truth, and there's nothing uglier than that.
0: Yeah, some of the meanest things I've ever heard were followed by "I'm just saying," or uh, "You know, uh, all due respect, but like, oh no, what are they, how are they going to try to crush me here?" Yeah, th- those are horrifying words to hear, especially when when the words that follow are not grace-filled. Um, because they're usually not filled with grace. And they do there. And the truth, I mean, for a wise and thick skinned person, sometimes those statements, and the truth that comes through them can be very good. And a lot of growth can happen. But then there's those other times in life where you're just when we are not ready to hear it, and it, it does as much damage as healing and that's not optimal. and if you find yourself uh, everybody at home or in your car or wherever you listen if you find yourself unable to stop thinking about a thing you know you you find yourself in in depression or deep anxiety or you find yourself uh, angry at somebody for weeks and you just can't stop thinking about that thing that that's another real good uh, telltale of of that there's something in you not the other person in you that ha- has been attached or or an imagination or imagined good or or something that's going to come from that person that they didn't live up to and why should why should you in the moment and your physiology why should you be anxious angry why should you be suffering why should you be bitter because they didn't live up to an expectation that they didn't even know you had, or if they did know that you had it, they're human and they're going to fail. And for you to ruminate and for you just to be on about it for weeks, months, years is to your own damnation and destruction, not theirs. Get over it and go to confession, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, thank you so much. It was a, it was a, an, it was a joy to record again today. It took some. Uh, some different turns, but that's the beauty of following where the Holy Spirit leads. This was an excellent conversation, and I do hope that our listeners will uh, will find us, to write us, uh, give us their feedback and their questions so that this can be a, a dialogue. Uh, look us up, on, of course, on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, and on social media on the Battlefield Podcast. Father, thank you so much. Have a blessed Holy Week, and... Talk to you again soon.
0: Look at the clay, steel clay, from the words of St. Lazarus. Yeah, thank you a lot, uh, Father Michael. It was a joy. These open forum discussions are a ball. I probably learn more from our talks and sifting through my own thoughts than the people at home do, which selfishly is wonderful, but if anybody can take away just a percentage of what I gain, uh, may it be blessed. Uh, Thanks again, everyone out there in podcast land and be brave, be strong, and follow the Lord our God out there on the battlefield until we meet again. God bless.
1: Keep fighting the good fight. See you next time.
0: Hey, and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Mark Antonia and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope. And endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life, which Father Michael brings into my life every day that he does the things that he does, like making amazing jokes about uh, snowstorm purchases there in Tennessee. Happy New Year to you, Father Michael. Uh, It is 2022, and I'm thrilled to be back with you today.
1: So tell Uh, me what's happening with you. Outstanding, man. Just Loving life and happy to be here recording with you. We are in, uh, here in Nash, Vegas. We we have snow on the ground. We got a snowstorm yesterday, despite like last week being, uh, being, there was a day where it got up to like 70 some degrees. And this week we have snow, it's 19 degrees out. That's not going to last the weekend, but it's enough for the kids to go play in. And uh, as what Father Joseph is mentioning, there's the odd supermarket purchases. So if you hit Kroger, uh, before the snow, as did everyone else, you would notice the things that were, are now absent from the shelves are things like milk, eggs, and bread, which to me, I can't get over. It's like the weirdest storm time purchase because all you can do with that is make French toast. Like that's just telling me, it's like everyone's plan to ride out a snow in is just lots of French toast. And I mean, how far can you go on that, really? It's just, it, it, it's it's weird to me. There's so many other things you could buy, but uh, apparently everyone's making French toast, and that's fine. Um, and the kids are off from school, so this was supposed to be the first day. Uh, the, sorry, this was supposed to be the first week back in school. Uh, they had their first day in school on Wednesday, snow yesterday, which is ice and snow today. So They had a one, they started off 2022 with a one day school week. And I know they're calling that a win because they're kids. But uh, in any event, uh, no, it's great to have them for, uh, it's great to have them for another week and so forth. So, uh, But let's jump into it. What do we wanna talk about today?
0: I think that's funny. I mean, my kids out here uh, on just the other day, it started to snow and it was, it was a violent snow. It was a it was a snow warning, a, a wintry event. You know, we had forty mile an hour winds, minus five temperatures, and blinding amounts of snow. I think six inches of snow fell in just a few hours. And then uh, yesterday they had the day off, air quotes, because they all had to zoom, and it was a virtual school day. Yeah, there there is no uh, thank you COVID, but there are no more. Uh, winds for kids to go out and play in the snow because mine were inside doing homework after the after the liturgy of epiphany but uh yeah hey let's you know having come off the the uh the adrenaline and materialistic high of christmas just uh, 13 days ago uh we thought it would be an interesting uh, exercise to talk about materialism and ego uh, so let's let's mix those two lovely words together and uh, see where they take us, Father Michael. What, what's your take
1: on that? Well, it's uh, before we jump into that. I gotta say, it, it's also uh, it, it's also uh, interesting. Let's just say interesting that here we are. Yesterday was Epiphany. We get snowed in in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places. Technically, the local old calendars got a white Christmas. I mean. I, I don't I don't know what to do with that I just uh, that's that that is what it is they got a white Christmas this year um, any case uh, so materialism and ego I think that's those are great topics so what's really interesting and I think as we were discussing earlier in the week when we were talking getting ready for today I think what's very interesting is the role that ego plays you know as with all things if we look to the greek um it's really interesting that the word for i in greek both both ancient and modern one of those words that really hasn't changed in the various iterations of greek since the classical period the word for i is or "ego," like that's how you say it Um, so that that's that's a real interesting thing but even more interesting is when I'm looking at, for example, the uh, the promises of recovery programs. You know, the promises of AA, and, and I would invite any of our listeners to to look up the promises of AA because if you're if you're wondering what is it supposed to do, um, and, and why do we keep talking about it it's a great document and it's short and it's stuff that like, even if you're not an alcoholic, you're going to look at, you're going to read that and say, wow, that's, those are things I want. I mean, it's, there's almost, there's not much mentioned in there on not drinking. it's, It's really not about just not drinking. It's about like, no, how do you amend your character defects and how do you transform your mind and your life so that you're living differently so that you're living as they would put it happy, joyous and free. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, the living in a non-egotistical way is really the crux of what the promises hit on. Um, And I I don't have it in front of me, so I need to paraphrase, but there's a line in there that says something very much like, so uh, know that I'm not quoting perfectly, but that says something very much like, um, we will lose interest in selfish things things, and gain interest in our fellows. So like a hallmark of sobriety is, you lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in your fellows. And that's a very interesting way of phrasing it. Because it's not just like, I will be less selfish. But even selfish things and gain interest in others. And so like when you talk to, uh, if you talk to a sponsor, if you have someone who's like been in recovery for a while, and they're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm having uh, you know, resentments, I'm upset, I'm this, I'm that. One of the things they'll very often point them towards is service work. Like, go do some service work. Like, stop, do something that makes you not focus on you. Like, go do some service work. And that could be a lot of things. Service work could be anything, but the, 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 what defines service work is, it's not to benefit you. It's to benefit someone else. Um, so if you're taking that and you're really serious about it, then selfish things is also like, is so like, you know, you're, you're at your job and you're at your job and there's a high visibility project up and you put your name in for it. That may or may not be a selfish thing, but it might be. So from a recovery perspective, right? Like, am I... Putting my name into this hat unnecessarily because I want the praises and accolades that go with it to stroke my own ego, despite the fact that it's going to take me away from my family more. And it was not something that I had to do. It was completely voluntary. Um, you know, my father in helping me sort of sort through my own over busy schedule. You know, he's pointed out to me, he's like, everything that you keep saying yes to is also a no to your family because you're not with them. And that was something I had to consider, right? And what do I keep on my plate? So, but from a recovery standpoint, like, let's take that example that project at work. Like, well, okay, you've thrown your hat in here. You want the glory and the accolades of being praised and sort of, you know, being, you know, the attaboy from the boss in your local hierarchy or whatever, Why? Is it to stroke your ego? I mean, it's not a bad thing. You're not doing something wrong, but it might be a selfish thing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the right thing to do. Um, But that's how insidiously ego can work in. It could be something that mundane. You know, it's not necessarily some dramatic, awful example. So how do we help our people out, man? Um, Sort of fleshing that out and looking at it uh, bo- both spiritual, like, are there are, like, take, I'll tell you what, let me throw this one over to you. Um, can you think of any ways where certain things, even that we do is pretty certain ways we handle ministry. Where does the ego come in on that? Does it? I think it does. I think that,
0: I mean, we've talked about that before that there are, there's a lot of things that, that, we as priests do, that people in general tend to do to justify their value, justify their worth. Um, And I think it's particularly easy for a priest because so much of what we do doesn't look like the work that the people in the parishes do. You know, we don't do the nine to five. We don't go and produce uh, documents. We don't go and produce a a physical, tangible Product at a, at a factory. We don't go and teach students with, with uh, with our with our time and have, uh, verifiable and testable results that can be proven and shown to people. The product that that is being produced by by our time, if it's being uh, de- devoted to God uh, can take years before there's any manifestation of the work and the input. So it becomes very easy for us to justify the time that we spend at the office to be 10 or 12 hours a day, sitting behind a desk, pushing paper and creating initiatives and doing all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's very easy to, to, um, become me and I focused in order to justify my value, uh, in, in the world. Um, and I think that AA has it right, and so far as when you start to do that sort of thing, maybe just maybe getting involved with some sort of work, some sort of uh, any any sort of time dedicated to other people, rather than trying to justify your own value, is is a good use. There's a there's a local guy that does a lot of street ministry here in Cheyenne. And he said to me one day, he said, a lot of people, in my opinion, do discipleship wrong. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, discipleship for me starts with getting people involved with charity and doing works of kindness and and mercy towards others. And along the way, I teach them the gospel. He said, I think a lot of times we start with trying to teach people the gospel and then try to get them involved with acts of kindness and mercy. And I think that's backward. So I think that, you know, and I think that's easy to do. We we can, we can justify these things cognitively. We, we can justify these things rationally and justify ourselves in all sorts of different ways. But if my life revolves around me and my value and my worth and my output and what it is, you know, the optic that you see, the, the lens through which you see me and how I do things, then I might be wrong.
1: Yeah, and I well, and I think that uh, I think that that happens. You, you know what makes what makes it so insidious, and this is where we need to, as the body of Christ, kind of be a brotherhood that looks out for one another, uh, because we create that really quick by encouraging the wrong things. You know, I, I can tell you right now. I mean, you know, you mentioned being in, you know, sitting in the at the office and pushing around papers because the people around us as priests don't necessarily understand how priestly ministry works or what you do or when you're doing it or they they might not even see it you know because um, because there's a, there's immense portions of priestly ministry there, there's these big swaths of priestly ministry that are immensely intimate and personal like someone invites you to bless their home and then they also want to talk to you about the heartbreak their kids are putting them through or the, their marriage troubles or the fact that, I, I mean, one thing that happens a lot, and I'm pretty sure this has happened to you a lot. I know it's happened to me a lot. Someone is sick with something, but they don't want everyone knowing. Like, like they're, they've got something going on in their life that they want to talk to their priest about that's really rocking their world, but they also want privacy. And... And so they bend your ear. And guess what? If you're not in that household, you don't know that ministry is happening, right? There's no way for your other 300 families to know that ministry is happening right then. But uh, I guarantee you, and I and I think, uh, I, I, I believe, I think, I hope that the Christ whom I serve would agree that the most essential ministry is happening right then. But there's not necessarily an optic for it. And... You're not going to write a report on that. You're going to be like, hey, guys, guess what? By the way, I was ju- I just spent the last two hours comforting Mrs. Pappas because she's going through some intensely personal stuff. No, you don't do that. And, and nor should you, right? That would be pastoral malfeasance. You should not do that. But what happens is, like, there's no optic. How does anyone know you're working? Um, if you've got a good bunch of people Who aren't suspicious of how you spend your time? That's not an issue, but because a lot of our people, because a lot of our people um, don't know what the priest does and are suspicious because they view it as an employer-employee relationship because they've involved money, they want the optic. And so you, what you'll get praised for, what you'll get applauded for, are the ego projects, are the visibility, are the are are the uh, the optics like, Oh, he's, I, every time I walk in here, he's in his office. That should be a problem. if Every time you walk in here, he's in his office. It means, well, every time you've walked in here, he's not in the altar praying, which by the way, as a priest, you really should go and spend some time in the altar every day that you're at the church. Even if it's just a few minutes to say a few quick prayers, that should be your lifeblood. Um, it means he's not out counseling someone. It means he's not out like I I, one of the things I've loved in my ministry is getting invited to talk to college classes, because very often there'll be like a class on, um, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire or on and they'll cover they'll mention orthodoxy. So who are you people? Or there was a there was a college class back in Rochester, Um, they were it was for social workers and they would invite people from different faiths to come and talk to them. And the question was, if we have a social work client who is an orthodox Christian, what should we know? What are the things we should know in order to serve them? well? Which is an excellent question. Um, But if if every time you walk in the office, oh, my gosh, it's great. He's pushing papers. Well, it means he's not there. He didn't get ordained to push papers. He got ordained to be there. And... um, and it boils down to what your friend said about discipleship. I think he's I think he's on to something. That's a great point. But all of that will stroke the eagle. You'll get applauded for that. You'll you'll do you'll do thirty years in the same parish with that. You'll get you get officia, and uh, and building projects, and money projects, and it'll look really good on paper. And I mean. How does your ego not get wrapped up in that? I mean, I've had like such minimal, such minimal success and glory in my own priesthood. And my ego's even wrapped up in that. Even just a little bit of minute success, my ego gets wrapped up in. And a recovery guy would say, that that's spiritually intoxicating, that that's not spiritually sober. Like you got to find a way to remove your ego because it's poisonous.
0: So, yeah, I mean, then I, I was just thinking like, what is the result of all this ego then? I mean, there has to be, there has to be some sort of net outcome from having uh, a life that revolves around myself and my own glory and my own, and all the accolades and all the all the visuals, all the opportunities that I tried to receive for myself, you know, and, and that was the second half of what we said we were going to talk about this morning, I think, and that was materialism. It's like, is the material world and the gain thereof the goal of my life? And is that the net result of egoism, of egotism? What do you think?
1: Yeah. I think, yeah, I think, I think that materialism, well, there's no other way for it. There's nothing else to happen because if you're not, if your ego is involved, I'm sorry, if your ego is involved, if you're doing things egotistically, as we often do, like this is something that everyone should have to check themselves on. Like, 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 um, I mean, heck man, you could say like, Hey, you know, you did the dishes tonight. Maybe you don't do the dishes a lot. You did the dishes tonight. That could be a totally egotistical thing, right? Because, you know, because now you've got some kind of manipulative request that you want to make of your wife and you're like, hey, um, but I helped out, you know? I mean, you know, it's even that could be egotistical. But I think materialism has to be the, I think materialism has to happen because you're, you're not, if you're not amending that character defect, if you're not trying to get your own ego out of it, if you're not trying to do the right things for the right reason, because even St. Maximus, the confessor, says that unless good is done properly, it's no longer good. Um, then you have no choice but to arrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and keep the optics good. Um, and I think the bigger problem, and maybe you can I want you to speak to this a little bit. Because the bigger problem in leading into the materialism is what happens before that or what, what becomes actually what I view as a vicious cycle with that, and that is mediocrity. You can't try to be great, to, to try, to, be, to, try to, to exude areti, greatness, virtue. You would have to amend the character defects. You would have to address the things that are going wrong. You'd have to address the underlying venom and pettiness and awfulness and sin and everything else in the institution. And you'd have to say no to some stuff. You'd have to say no to some of those donors, and you'd have to say no to some of the uh, some of the vanity projects. And you'd have to tell people, no, it's not your business who I'm visiting and when. And the ministry is going on there because if they wanted it to be your business, they would have told you. Um. You'd have to, you'd have to stay, say no, to a lot of things. So, you have to be mediocre, right? You keep the services to what? How, how comfortable are the people? Do they want us to cut some prayers out? Are they going to be happier? Are they going to feel good? Are they going to come The 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 teaching and. The the, the 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 teaching in your classes and your catechism has got to be like warm vanilla pudding, like everybody is going to be happy. No one's getting shaken up. No ideas are getting challenged. No feathers are getting ruffled. At least only the feathers that are appropriate within the community. You know, the people who are the movers and shakers, their feathers are fine. Anyone else's feathers can be ruffled, but not the, their feathers. So you, you've got to be mediocre. You know, St. John Chrysostom, one of the ways he ended up in exile was... He spoke the truth, regardless of who was listening. And there was an empress who was doing the wrong thing, and he told her. And then he ended up in exile. We do his liturgy, we sing his praises, but we have that same dysfunctional dynamic in every one of our parishes and metropolises. Um, you've got to be mediocre. You've got to try to not really be anything and just keep everyone happy and, rock the, and, 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 and and pacified. And the only way to justify that is by having lots of material stuff. I'm keeping everyone pacified. I'm not insisting that people really fast. I'm not insisting that parents and godparents uh, really prepare, you know, are really going to bring their kids to, to church. I mean, hey, you, you showed up for communion. We're happy with that. No, we're not. But I, you know, uh, but but I, I don't want to insist. You might not come. You're already not locked in. Uh, the the couple's coming for marriage. You know, it's a drive-by sacrament, but you're going to do it anyway. Well, Why? Why do we do that? It's mediocrity. Because if we were, if we were actually serious about really maintaining the standard and integrity of the faith, we would say no to at least some of that stuff sometimes, but we don't. And once you accept that mediocrity, then the only thing you can do is cover over it with materialism, material things. we got a new icon project. we got a new building project. We're pumping all this money here. We're giving this award to the important family, so they keep supporting. So we're keeping our finances good. There's great metrics on the budget. Materialism is the only way to cover over mediocrity. But Christ is the one who says in the apocalypse of John, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you from my mouth.
0: I met a business person recently that that said to me, Father, I have a question for you. I said, yeah, what's the question? And the, this person said, I give a lot of money to a lot of different charities every year, and they like to write glowing uh, thank you letters and to put them on websites and in newspapers and in television ads, and all of the accolades make me uncomfortable. Is, Is it appropriate for me to feel uncomfortable when they promote so heavily what I do? To which I responded to this person, yes. You are rightfully uncomfortable. And they said, is that because in some way I'm losing my reward in heaven because of how they treat what I'm giving? And I said, yes, yes. And to which they said, okay, I'm glad to have that clarification. And it was really an astounding thing because this person is, I mean, rightfully in their own In their own way very famous around these parts for all that they do I mean they give huge huge amounts of money to a ton of really great things but this person is very uncomfortable with how their gifts are treated so they're going to start doing things anonymously rather than in the open because they feel uncomfortable spiritually with how their gifts are
1: handled have they ever considered have they ever considered sponsoring a podcast (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that i'm sure that they would Um, i'm
0: sure that they would uh they they get along very well uh, with me so i'm sure that that ask would go far yeah (laughs) but but you know i mean that but that sort of attitude uh would look i think to the world as uh, kind of a, a feeble and mediocre attitude like oh come on just suck it up and accept just accept the, the, the gratitude that these people are sh- are showing, right? I mean, that's, that's the justification. And that looks like a lack of gratefulness on their part, a lack of whatever, whatever you, your opinion is of their response. But that's actually the appropriate response, because this person says, God has given me huge increase, and I give accordingly. That's all. It's not because I'm some great philanthropist, but God is blessed, and He requires me to, in turn, bless.
1: I, I'm, I, I, you know, all joking aside, um, please congratulate this person and tell them they made the exact connection they're supposed to make. Like, like they, they, they put the right pieces into the equation and drew the right conclusion, and I hope they then, therefore, follow through and do the right things with it. Um, I think which, that this person will God willing. I, and you know, what's great is, mm-hmm. you know, what's funny is I actually know, I don't know too many rich people, but I do know a couple. And what's really interesting, a lot of them, while there are some who need their ego stroked, there's some poor people who need their ego stroked too. Um, a bunch of them kind of feel like they don't have anything proved. Like they kind of already have all the stuff. They've already got all their stuff. They know they're like, you know they they know that what they've got. They're like, we've already got all the stuff. We already got all the toys. Um, you know, like a discreet a discreet thank you letter on their desk is like enough. You know, to be like, hey, I'm writing you saying thank you. Like, okay, but anonymous is better. Anonymous is better. So when you're reading. Uh, Because he made the exact connection that Jesus would want us to make. It's Jesus who says, "Woe to you, when men thank you and praise you, for I tell you, you already have your reward." And that really does scare me when we're in our parishes and um, someone does something great and then we thank them. I'm like, did I just cheat this person out of out of something that was going to contribute to their salvation? Did I just cheat them out of something that was going to contribute them making it into the kingdom of heaven? Now that I've thanked them, are they in trouble? I don't know. In trouble is not the right word, but is that going to, yeah. I, I like Christ is bigger than that, of course, but you know what I mean? Like, am I impoverishing them? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Am I impoverishing them in some way by taking that out of the kingdom of heaven? And, and I think so in, again, in, in in recovery terms, uh, when they talk about anonymity, they say anonymity is the cornerstone of our practice, um, so that we may always place principles over personalities. It's not like like a, a, as 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 AA has grown, it's no longer become the big thing that like we have to be anonymous because we're scared someone will know. That you go to a twelve-step meeting—that's not really even the issue, it, most of the time. I mean, it's on the table, but it's not the biggest part of the table. The bigger part of the table is this needs to not become an ego-driven exercise and um, principles over personalities. It really shouldn't matter who any of you are, and, and that's also what part of like part of the founding document is that none of none of the group leaders can be professional. There can be no professionally paid. A a hierarchy can't happen by the founding documents in order to keep it from becoming an ego exercise. It's really interesting. But um your your friend's on the right track and and I pray that they do the right things. And I hope that they do all their giving anonymously now, you know, so that they can place the principles over personalities. Like I don't need your thanks, I need the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You know, I mean Yeah, I think I think that the
0: bottom line for what qualifies or disqualifies someone from receiving that reward in heaven is from whom you enjoy to take and give glory. Why did you do the thing? Was it to glorify God and to make his wonders known? Or did you do the thing to receive the glory for yourself? I think I think that that is the bottom line and I think that ego and materialism then uh, become uh, we can illuminate the the interplay between the two of those from that reference point because egoism that turns into materialism and the feeding of my own self-righteousness the the feeding of my own uh, whatever um then becomes a little bit clearer because then you can see the the spiritual sickness embedded in that kind of ego that when I have to have the material gains or when I'm more focused on the gain within the church and, and the optics of it all, there is embedded with that a spiritual sickness and maybe even a spiritual addiction. And this, this is something that we, as orthodox christians need to be aware of and and fight against It's like why do you need the boat in the garage or the driveway you may actually need it you may it may actually be your hobby but do you really need the boat or is there something spiritually wrong in your soul that makes you think that acquiring that thing is going to pacify that nagging uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That that kind of nagging need that's driving you toward acquiring and having the the physical thing.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with you, and I think like what what really gets me on it, where I would say a good place to tell if you've crossed that line, because I, I mean I think you know I, so I I've seen people receive more recognition than they like. And they weren't certainly after that. And I don't think, you know, like they, they were trying to do the right thing and they were trying to be discreet and anonymous. And then they got thanked more than they were comfortable with. And I don't think Christ is going to rob them of what he had been intended to do because they didn't they weren't after that and seeking it. Um, I've also seen people put on their, you know, put on very selfish shows of piety that were not sincere. And I don't think there's a reward for that. Like, I think sincerity is a You know, if we're looking at the scriptures, you know, the way that God is constantly referred to as the one who weighs the hearts and minds, who alone knows knows the contents of the heart. Well, I mean, then then that's that integrity, that sincerity um, is what he's really going to look at. And only he can really winnow through that. Um, And I think for myself, that's terrifying because my ego is so involved everywhere. Uh, I I don't know if I have anything ever that would pass the test, which is where we need his his grace and his mercy and his love. Um, I think another way here, I think where I would really draw that line, say like, how do you, how do you know if you've crossed it? Would be like, where, when are you, when do you start talking about taking your ball and going home? Like what's the issue? over? Because I've seen, I've seen so many people like fight in parishes over, like where does the candle stand go? Um, what color is the new carpets? Um, well, I, duh. I mean. I mean, you know where you know we we, we, we I this you know my this bench isn't here or or you know even even like musical settings for for the singers or whatever you know it, then if that thing gets touched then we're willing to walk. Well, hold on. If we're so dedicated and we say that this is the body of Christ, it's the number one priority in our life, this is the most important thing, um, this is where salvation occurs, but there is some petty material thing, whether it's your, whether it's the music you prefer for chanting or choir, whether it's the pews, the carpet, the windows, the candlestick whatever. There's some... that you're willing to walk away from the body of Christ for or alienate yourself from the body of Christ for, then I think that's really where that egotistical material line is. Because if you're not a liar and you really meant what you said, that this is the body of Christ and that God is here and that this is the ark of salvation and you really meant all that, then how could some simple petty material thing pull you away from it? How could even a difficult personality in the church ter- pull you away from it? Because you weren't going there for them. You weren't going to liturgy uh for Mr. Smith. You're going there for you. Who cares if he's a jerk? And maybe you're kind of a jerk also. But who cares? I but mean, that's why know-
0: I'm out of here because he made me mad. I was <laughs> I was there for me bro
1: yeah i egotistical so like in matthew's in, Ma, in matthew 24 the only uh the only detailed accounting of the last judgment that we get you get the sheep and the goats and those two groups are nearly identical seriously like they like they both use the same confession of, the sh- uh, of faith when when the sheep and the goats address christ in his judgment They both say, Lord, Lord, Lord. So they both confess him as Lord. Great. There's both the rundown of the same actions directed at each. You know, I was hungry and you clothed. I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty and you gave me to drink. Naked, you clothed me. Sick in prison, you visited me. Or you did not. Okay. But here's what's interesting. So like if you put tone on what the goats say, where he says, hey, you didn't visit me. They kind of say it like, when when did we not visit you? When did we not when did we see all these things and not care for you? Not visit you, not clothe you, not feed you. They're very aware of what they did. I've done it. I've done it. And I know what I've done, and now I have this to charge against you. You owe me. This is that manipulative thing. You owe me. Hold on. I was a great benefactor. You owe me. Ah, you didn't do it for the least of your brethren. You did it for you. Insofar as you didn't do it for the least of your brethren, you didn't do it for me. And then to the sheep, and this is how you know that's the tone to read it in. Because when he talks to the sheep, he says, Hey, you guys fed me and gave me drink and clothed me and visited me. And they say, when did we do it? Now, either Christ is lying. Either God is lying and they didn't do those things. Or they did them, but their ego wasn't involved. Or they did them, and it was really sincere. They were just doing it because it was the next right thing to do. Because this is what you do. This is how a Christian lives. This is how one follows Christ. We didn't do anything spectacular. We did what was expected of us. To use the language of the New Testament, what shall we say? We are but unprofitable servants doing our duty. We did only so why, that
0: which is commanded of us, right? right? Isn't that
1: the yeah? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So why would we why would we think that was noteworthy? Because they don't think it was noteworthy. That's why it's important. It was done in sincerity, without the ego, without the materialism, without the uh, the the manipulative checklist to hold over the head. That's how you know. That's the tone to read the goats in. When did we not do it? Oh, they had they had done those things, but they knew they were doing it. They were doing it for their own selfish reasons. The sheep, they had actually done it in a Christian way. Like we did nothing more than what was commanded. How is that special? There was humility. You see the, that the, and the idolatry of I. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting, and that's been the devil's that's been the devil's trademark for a long time. Um, You know, there is in in the Far East, right in uh, in certain because here's the thing, like in in India, Hindu uh, in India, yoga is primarily it's not like trendy stretching. It's primarily a religious meditative practice. And one of the one of the mantras, one of the very famous mantras within meditative yoga is just I am. I am. And the point is to see that there that even uh even divinity and the cosmos are not uh, are not differentiated from me from i from my ego for i am i am synonymous with i really i'm synonymous with all of that i see that that's it this has been one of the devil's trick for millennia because you, you know, there's a reason why you keep doing the basics well into black belt and jujitsu. They work. Fundamentals work. I, I mean, you know, he doesn't have to change up the classics if they keep working. Um, we just got to stop being stupid enough to fall for him all the time. That's, I think that's the thing.
0: Satan is a, is a toothless, powerless being at this point because of Christ. That only has power in the life of a Christian when we give it to him, which is the saddest and most kind of ridiculous part of the Christian life. You know, you see Christians walking around dejected and depressed and and unhappy and almost more miserable than people in the world, and we look at them and say, "Come on, man, you, you you've you've entirely by choice." given all kinds of power to Satan that he does not wield over you without your consent. And this, this is a very deep spiritual affliction, but I love that passage that you started to quote. "Is like, when you have done all that you were commanded, say that we are lowly servants and have done only that which was required of us. Only that which was required. We didn't do anything more. We didn't do anything more. and that was the lead up. I, I was um, that we that we can do nothing more than what was required. And anything else that we take as our own. When did we do those things and and not do them for you, Lord, 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 right? Well, yeah, you're vainglorious. You're receiving that glory vainly. You took it to yourselves. you took it emptily because it wasn't yours to receive you putz you only did what was required and and that is the bare minimum it's not like you did something above and beyond you didn't go you, you didn't go uh, to the ends of the earth for those people you did it so you'd be seen which isn't e- which isn't even that which was required it's less than what was required because you didn't do it for them you didn't do it for god you did it for yourself you worshiped yourself in service so stop it. If that's how you look at service, if you do it for yourself and for feeling good and all those things, maybe you need to, how'd they say it? You better check yourself before you break yourself or wreck yourself. <laughs> check yourself before you wreck yourself. Remember that nineties phrase? I, I I do. and You can't the, believe I said it.
1: <laughs> the, the gangster rap community of the early nineties is, 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 is collectively shaking their heads right now. Sweet. <laughs> the, But yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think, I think you're 100% correct. So while we see this, we see this play out, actually, also, we see this play out also, in the way our liturgical life is structured. So what Father Joseph and I are aware of and what a lot of other people just don't pick up on is that the first person singular doesn't get used by the priest when he is administering the mysteries ever. Um, And that's specifically an Eastern thing. So even in the traditional Latin formulas, like if you were in a traditional Latin mass um, and you were going through their traditional Latin formulas, the first person singular gets used. So like the uh, in Latin a priest would say Baptiz, baptizo I baptize you in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit or um you know or, or whatever but or absolvote I absolve you and I an unworthy priest absolvote I, I an unworthy priest absolve you the priest in the orthodox church the priest never says these things he says it's in the passive third person baptizete the servant of God is baptized um, the, at confession. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit through my insignificance has you loosened and forgiven. Uh, even at a wedding, you know the servant of God stephete is crowned, is betrothed. You know uh, at holy unction. Is anointed. It's not, I'm doing it. It's like, this is happening. Stephete is crowned, Baptizete is baptized. Who's doing it? Well, it's Christ doing it. Christ is liturgist. Through his priest. Through his ministers. Through his body. Um, so even our liturgical life is really structured to take the I, the ego, out. Um, and what makes it so treacherous is that we can put it back in in a thousand different ways, especially if we then make a an optic, a visual show of being very positive. No, 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 don't thank me, don't thank me. And I'm gonna yell, don't thank me as loud as I can so that everyone hears me yelling it. Like we can make a show of that. You know, uh, and I think you're absolutely right in saying that the devil is, is toothless and powerless. Which one of the really interesting things is um, both saints, uh, Porfidios and Paisios of so recent blessed memory uh, back in the, they died in the 90s. And they both point out that the devil has no power over the life of a Christian except the rights that we give him. And, and those get broken by confession. So, you know, like people will come to them and have all these worries about the influence of the devil. And they're, they're like the writings of not just them, but all the saints are really clear. If you're sticking close to Christ and you're sticking close to the mysteries and you're living a life of sincere repentance, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the devil. Like you should have more trust in Christ than you do fear for the devil. But we don't do that. And what's interesting is um, like when you're looking at art from the Renaissance period on, especially in in, in Western Europe, but then what gets exported all over the world, um, you see the devil portrayed as a really fearful and 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 hulking muscular figure with dangerous claws and talons and flaming eyes and teeth and at that same time they start to depict Christ as sort of a wispy gentle sort of effete powerless like look at that like which one of these two really looks like it, 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 which one of these two is really more awe inspiring versus And so that attitude then seeps into the culture where it's like, whoa, we're definitely more concerned about the devil than we are concerned about being on the wrong side of Christ, which is completely wrong from the Christian perspective. Versus if you look at Byzantine iconography of Christ being tempted in the wilderness, Christ is like, you know, in the icon, he's large and in charge. And the devil is pictured as a little, you know, dark, knee-high figure. What St. Paisios calls Tangalaki, the nuisance. Yeah, he's kind of an issue, sort of. But the Christ involved is so much bigger. The solution is so much bigger than the problem.
0: To me, that's the interesting aspect of it. Because I think that that idea of Christ as victor, Christ as conqueror, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the the Lamb of God who has overcome the world, it stands victorious on the hill, and the devil defeated. But when does the when does the devil become the Renaissance figure in in our life? Is it is it when I'm abiding in Christ and I see Him as Victor, and He's the one that I'm standing next to, and He's the one that I'm focused on, or? Does Jesus become the effete Jesus and the devil, the big, powerful guy, when I'm focused on me and I'm on Amazon feeding my materialistic uh, glory every day, having things shipped to my house with the money that I earn and the house that I bought? You know, I mean, all these all these things that require the first person personal pronoun. My house. I have. I want. I need. You know, We, we start to feed we start to feed that that uh, that idol. We start to take care of the, the the idolatrous I, and then all of a sudden, the powerful Orthodox Jesus and the diminutive wisp of a shadow, being Satan himself, are flipped on their head and they become the Renaissance images of the big, powerful demon. Because in that place, when I. I make myself the king, and I make myself the center of importance, and, and my wants, my desires, my perceived needs become the all-encompassing good, then in fact I do turn over the reins to Satan, and he then becomes very powerful in my life, not because he was, but because I made him powerful.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting is what's interesting is one of the one of the ancient words to one of the ancient words to to even I mean, it used to exist in English, like one of the ancient words for reverence was fear, right? Like awe. We used to speak of awe in that way in English. But I mean, you would stand in awe. So like who, who is your awe towards? Well, I mean, if it's towards God, then I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm much more interested in being on the right side of God. But if, if our awe is really at the devil and we're, we're in awe of of the of the the spectacle, and the appearance, and, and the, you know, and we're and we're fearful of that, then then how can we also have reverence for God? We can't really, you know, he sort of becomes the the non potent. Uh, the, the non-potent, non-actor who, well, he, you know, he understands. We know he commanded this stuff and told us to do Ah, He understands. He knows. Like, you ever wonder, like, you ever, like, right? Like, we've got, like, in our media and our stories, like, if you make a contract with the devil, it's unbreakable. But God understands. And, you know, and, like, you could accidentally no longer, you know, you could, like, his he your baptismal promises might not work and your back your connection to Christ, but if you make a contract with the devil accidentally, it's unbreakable in a lot of like stories like John Milton, right? You know, uh, or, 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 or now that wasn't paradise lost. That was, um, Oh God, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, the one with Meth- Mephistopheles. Ah, I'm blanking, but it was one of those classical stories, but it was the same thing, right? Faust. That was Faust. Yeah. The Faustian bargain, right? Like how's Faust going to get out of it? Like, really? So, we've got more trust like that. And, and the reason why Faust becomes a classic story is because that's the story that the society was telling themselves in their heads. So, it resonates. And it's like, yeah, we're more worried about the devil being ironclad than God. I mean, that's insane. Right? But we've bought the insanity. And that plays out, I think, as we've just pointed out, it plays out in our artwork, it plays out in our stories. And it's not a narrative that we have to accept. And if we don't accept that he really is powerless, um, you know, it's interesting, right? Like when you're reading scripture, like the second person of the Trinity, the the uh, the the logos that takes flesh, is the man of war described in Exodus, where it says Yahweh is a man of war. That is the second person of the Trinity. Um, when John, who we are fortunate enough today today is January seventh, so today is the feast day of Saint John the Baptist, and the and when you when you read his preaching, like it's not of a fluffy effete God. He, he, he's saying, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear works that befit repentance. Know before whom you stand. You know, like like. Behold, the the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Don't lose sight that there's an axe. And or John's gospel where Christ says, you know, where Christ is so famous for telling me, Oh, love, love, you know, no, no, no greater man is a loveless than to lay down his life for his friends. Yeah, but he also says, He also says, You are the vine, I, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, as the branch abides in the vine, you can do nothing. every branch that does not bear fruit my father will cut off and toss into the fire, and a new branch will be grafted. Like, he, this is not a fluffy guy. Uh, you know, he's the one who says, he's the one who says, if your right causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then he's coming back at the end of the world as a conqueror. I mean, but we, like, but he's the one that we're going to depict but he's the one that we're going to depict as, uh, uh, as sort of wispy and, and ineffectual in our art. Please. I mean, look at this another way. This is a God who laughs so much at death that he walks voluntarily up to it at the cross and says, is that all you got? Like, that it, like that's so weak and ineffectual. Go ahead. Give me your worst. And I'm going to destroy it from the inside, defang it from the inside. And guess what? Now it's the pathway. I'm going to reclaim it. Now it's the pathway to life for all my followers. And we're all going to have this victory parade over you as we head into the kingdom. They've all got to trample over you to get into the kingdom. Like That's how we ought to be viewing death as Christians. Like This is the victory parade over which we trample the dead body of the God of death. That Christ destroyed the cross. And if he was the, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that means the devil was defanged before he even started. I mean, it, you know, uh, this is a God that thinks so little of any of that that he's like, go ahead, put it on me. What do you have? Nothing, nothing, less than nothing and and then at the end of at the end of time death and hades are thrown into the, the lake of fire like they're treated as entities yeah and, we're, and and all my my body as they die they're not circumventing you they're trampling over you too my body's just going to keep trampling you and then the world's going to end and then lake of fire like but we, we we don't stand in awe of that jesus anymore and i think in materialism And an egotism, we lose that all. We lose that respect, and in doing so, we lose the holiness of our worship. Because then it does become about like, hey, how do I like my stuff? Rather, I I like a fluffy
0: Jesus because he 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 condones my sin. He he's okay with. With it, but how much of that? I mean, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go two different directions, but like, we, we have in the West this, these ideas that that Anselm and other other Western theologians laid down, of of original sin and God's anger and His need for for atonement. Right, we need this substitutionary atonement of Christ because. We're just broken and sinful and we belong to the devil anyway. So I mean the devil is already our father, and Jesus has just kind of come in and and offered us something cool that we can latch on to, but we're really powerless toward it because we are just fallen and demonic and creaturely. There's nothing divine about you whatsoever. Not really. So you have that. And then and then you couple this broken anthropological idea this this misinterpretation of what humanity is ontologically by by the nature of its being in other words and then you couple that with with this societal insatiable appetite for for worldly gain and to find our to find all of our merit and all and and our success. So all the metrics of our being all the metrics of our ontology in the world. So then you end up with with this, this being that, that finds its success finds its being in in the insatiable appetite for the world. And then of then and then that's also further warped with these broken ideas. I think very broken Western ideas of what humanity and sin, and what we are by nature, and how do we overcome that? Then the, this this two headed dragon that's fighting against humanity. How do we fight really against that? And I think you already tapped on it. And I think that it's through prayer. But but prayer is. For the Orthodox, I think. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that prayer is an ontological, a a matter of being, something that is a matter of your very existence as a Christian, because it because prayer is by nature repentant, because when I pray, I am turning toward God and looking to Him as God. In some way, I'm I'm outside of myself, looking to the being, and then it's also in that moment. Abiding in the vine, because I'm finding that the only things in life that are good and strong and noble and wonderful are found in communing with Him. So I think that for me, prayer is very misunderstood, and that it's something that we need to take more seriously and understand more fully to overcome these things. But then, in light of prayer, see that the Western theologians were not correct. They were not right. And our anthropology as Orthodox Christians is so much fuller and so much sweeter because it's a better, fuller, more accurate picture of what humanity is, what we're intended to be, and why it is that God created us in the first place.
1: Yeah, it's not that, you know, it's not that, it's funny because, you know, when you're looking at some of the uh, theological systems that you mentioned with Anselm, with the reformers, with all these things. It's not that they can't find the words that they use in scripture. We would just say they're, they're, they're appraising them wrong. They're setting, you know, there's no such thing as a neutral reading of scripture or anything else. You're reading it through a particular lens. Well, if the lens and the metrics by which you appraise what you're looking at are off, you're going to come to conclusions that are off. Now, um, with that said, you know what will you know like your, your street preacher friend that you mentioned earlier like he's not an orthodox christian right so what will christ do with him in in, in his sincerity and sincere devotion well that's christ's business that's not your business is not my business kind of like how we talked about the uh the the pastoral prerogative of privacy at the beginning at, at the top of the episode hey man what christ does with that sincere guy who's doing the best he can with what he knows that's Jesus's business. Um, however, comma, um, whatever he does by him will be right and just and good. Now, what does that mean? Not my business. That's Christ's business. However, when we look at that and say, what these people have, you know, and let's be charitable, you know, perhaps making their best endeavors to understand how the divine economia works. They made their best endeavors. Uh, they may have been off the mark, but they're trying. And what we would say is, as Orthodox Christians, having the fullness of the faith, we ought to endeavor to be on the mark in so far as we can. And so that means that at the one time, um, you know, at the one time, there's nothing that our humanity can do that is capable of redefining what God has defined. Like, we're not that powerful. So guess what? If God says you're his image and likeness, you can't undo that. You don't have the power to undo that. So to redefine humanity and say, well, because of our actions, we are now redefined as solely, utterly, uh, you know, solely, solely, utterly depraved, this and that. I'm like, well, our actions aren't that powerful. Now, you can spend eternity blaspheming his image and likeness and neglecting it as he says to Timothy how shall we if we if we neglect how shall we if we neglect so great a salvation escape con- condemnation escape being condemned so look that's from the new testament so look, that's from Paul's that I believe it is to Timothy so like look, look at that so that 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 implies one you can neglect this great salvation and you'll be condemned for it So, I mean, you can take that image and likeness and do the wrong thing with it and reap the consequences of doing the wrong thing with it, but you can't redefine it because you didn't set the definition in the first place. Um, So it does become a matter of ontology. What is being? And prayer, because we are his image and likeness, prayer is meant to be not an activity, but a state of being. And that is expressed very well by uh, Elder Emilianos of Blessed Memory. Elder Meliánosa of Simenopetra in his book uh, *The Church at Prayer: The Mystic Liturgy of the Heart*, which is an excellent and short book, and it's wonderful, and it has one of the best detailed uh, instructions on how to pray the Jesus Prayer um, that I've ever read. It, so it's you know you pick it; it's it's well worth your sixteen bucks that you'll spend on Amazon to get it, and it's a quick, easy read. But you know, he says he, he says that. Um, when we say the verb to pray is brosevjome, brosevjhi we call prayer. And he says, he writes this out. He's like, when we say brosevjhi? That literally means to send a wish towards. Brose towards and he a wish or request. But when we speak of the Jesus prayer, it simply gets called the Evchi without the prefix. And Elder Emilianos points out that the reason for that is because when we're speaking about the prayer of the heart, it's not about a request being sent, towards someone, but rather it implies that some sort of union with the object of our prayer has already been achieved, because there's no longer the need for the pros, in pros, evhi. he, there's just the f So the idea then is, as he puts it, that prayer becomes, to use his language, a kind of stasis, stasis, or mode of being. And that's actually consistent with how orthodoxy talks at prayer all the time. This is not something like, oh, I'm going to go do my prayers. It's Um, you are going to take steps towards becoming prayer. You know, if the spirit, think about this, if we're the image and likeness of God and the spirit is God and he is God, um, and the spirit intercedes for us always with groans beyond our own understanding, then when are we not supposed to be praying? If we are his image and likeness, when are we not supposed to be imaging that? Well, it should be all the time. So we can mishandle his image, but we can't redefine it I, I, again, you know? So I, I'd say that, yeah, but, but this is why Orthodoxy insists so much on um, proper de- theological definitions, because the way that we understand how we approach big divine realities dictates what we'll do with it what is the lens there's nothing neutral so what is the lens through which you are now going to winnow this out into your life the lens by which you say this is important this isn't important no don't worry about that worry about this i mean look at what i mean look at even within our own communities like what's the lens by which most people in a lot of our communities worry about what they're concerned about the lens is droppy oh it's a shame oh the embarrassment Oh, I don't want my kid to make too much noise in church. The embarrassment. What? So now it's about I. I am worried about my embarrassment uh, in front of Mrs. Papadopoulos over there because she'll shoot me a look. She'll shoot me a look if Yanni makes too much noise. Okay. She shot you a look. So what? Now what?
0: What did her look mean? Was she adoring the child in the look or was she judging? Now, you've you've already made an imagination, imagined a uh, conclusion,
1: right? Yeah, you can, you can, I mean, it mean like, and what did that do to you? Nothing. Right, really? Like, okay, well, guess what? If I'm here for her approval and it's all about the me spectacle and how do I look, the optic of how do I look in front of her or anyone else? Well, we got a problem because now we're not a church for Christ. But if we're here for Christ, well, I guess look all you want, but he's up there. He's not back here. I'm not him. Go look up there. Like,
0: really? Yeah, we do get too focused on, on the optics. But, uh, you know, on, on the prayer thing, uh, uh, on our Rumble channel uh, here in, at Holy Apostles, we did an, an hour-long uh, talk on, on prayer from the perspective that you and I just talked about. If you want a little bit more information on that, check out our On the Battlefield uh, Rumble channel, and, and it's posted there. Uh, it was a series called The Great Battle orthodoxy or the world so check that out and you can also find us on on the battlefield podcast on facebook and instagram and you can find us on anchor.fm at on the battlefield uh father michael I hate to cut you off like that but i i'm almost late for an appointment so uh thank you uh for today um if you'd like to throw in any final thoughts please do that now and otherwise uh before you say anything, uh, you guys are going to be surprised at some things that happened here in 2022. We're, we're excited to, in the coming weeks, uh, tell you more, but just be prepared for some cool things happening.
1: Yeah. And I, I think I was going to spoil some of those cool things. So we'll, I'll, I'll... Go I'll, for it. Okay. Say whatever you think is appropriate. Oh, yeah. So, well, uh, so uh, you can definitely still find, as of this recording, you can still find us here on Anchor.fm, but um, we are here some you know we're in the 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 final stages of uh being picked up by ancient faith radio which we're very excited about uh that is the largest platform largest online media platform of orthodoxy today uh to include their great publishing and everything else and we are uh very very excited very much looking forward to being part of uh of their family and their brand and, and going on afr ancient faith radio so very soon I look forward to telling you all to find us there. Um, and that is going to be uh, that's going to be a a, a, big, uh, a big wonderful blessing here in the new year. Um, and let's you know what I, I like where this uh, conversation on prayer as a mode of being was going. So let's, let's maybe we can slide that into the next episode.
0: definitely. I, I really like talking about that. Because I think that people think when, and maybe most priests, when they say, oh, we'll pray about it. It is trite. But when I tell people at the parish here, or in general, uh, you need to pray. I'm telling you that you need to participate in your own ontological, in the very own essence of your being. I'm telling you that you need to repent, that you need to, in prayer, commune with the Holy Spirit uh, by the power of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. Uh, to the glory of the Father in the world, that that you bring him into the world through your intercession, through your through your act of prayer. So, yeah, I, we could talk about that for an hour
1: easily, I think. Let's do that next time. All right, well, may the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always, and a blessed epiphany to all of you, and uh, Merry Christmas to our old calendarist friends who had a white Christmas here in Esmeralda. Amen. Everybody be safe and noble
0: out there on the battlefield. Set aside yourself and your materialism and give it give yourself to Christ. Amen.